1: And away we go. Episode 158 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, October 4th, 2021. The day after a wild, crazy, loony Washington football team win at the Atlanta Falcons. 34-30 the final. You are forgiven if you're not feeling great about your football team uh, I'm not feeling great about our football team Ron Rivera wasn't feeling great about his football team during his postgame press conference on Sunday evening you will hear what I'm talking about coming up next segment but as the saying goes a win is a win and two and two sounds and feels a whole lot better than one and three is Washington a good team right now uh not defensively no. Uh, The defense is trash right now, but offensively, there are some things to like, including the starting quarterback, Taylor Heineke, balled out again on Sunday. Big Tay had another nice day. Hey, there's a rhyme. Two of the most improbable, spectacular, jaw-dropping fourth-quarter touchdown passes that you'll ever see. Major props to the recipients of those two touchdown passes, Terry McLaurin and J.D. McKissick. And man, do we have a lot to talk about with this game. Next segment, the front five. My five biggest takeaways from Washington's win at the Falcons. I'll go in-depth on Taylor Heineke, Washington's defense, and so much more. I also have plenty of thoughts on the game beyond the front five for you, including Bobby McCain sounding off on the media. After the game. Oh boy, was that rich. Uh, I will talk Nationals, their season mercifully ended on Sunday, but not before one of the best moments in Nationals Park history. An emotional salute to Ryan Zimmerman, who may have played the final game of his career. May have. Uh, We don't know because he apparently doesn't know. I'll talk college football too, breakdowns of Maryland's hideous loss to Iowa in College Park on Friday night. And Navy's come from behind win over UCF in Annapolis on Saturday. I tell you, the Terrapins got steamrolled on Friday night in a manner that was unholy and impure. That was not fun, that game against the Hawkeyes, that scrimmage against the Hawkeyes in College Park on Friday night. Friendly reminder, when you have like 30 seconds to kill, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give this podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And please write just like a one or two sentence review saying how much you like the podcast if you haven't yet done that. Uh, Those things help out a lot. You can hit pause on your iPhone or iPad right now and do those things. And I really do appreciate you guys for doing those things. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the podcast. At Yahoo.com. The feedback was a flowing late night Sunday night with what went down earlier in the day with our W to the F to the T. Email from Andrew Sly on Taylor Heineke writes, Andrew, I know Taylor Heineke's off script playmaking style has left some pundits and fans questioning his legitimacy. I, however, am just glad to have the first WFT quarterback since Brad Johnson, who will throw the ball more than five yards downfield. The missteps will come, but so far, Heineke has not strung bad games together, at least not consistently. Uh, No, he has not. And, you know, I was thinking about this with Taylor Heineke after the game on Sunday. So, You had the all-time touchdown run in the loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card round last January. You had the great touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones in the win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field in Week 2. And now you have these two ridiculous fourth-quarter touchdown passes in this win at the Atlanta Falcons. Right there, you have four truly memorable touchdowns authored by Taylor Heineke over his just four starts. As a Washington quarterback, regular season and postseason. Yeah, he's only started four games for Washington. You know that, right? Over the four starts, he already has four truly memorable touchdowns: a touchdown run and three touchdown passes. And you could argue some others are memorable, but we'll play a conservative for now. How many other Washington quarterbacks over the last 30 years have totaled for truly memorable touchdowns. And yet this freaking guy has four over his first four starts. The guy has authored like one special touchdown after another. He is a playmaker in every sense of the word. No, he's not perfect. Yes, there are some things that concern you, but like enough with this nitpicking of every little flaw and people to me need to really start appreciating what this guy is doing. Email from Mike in England on Taylor Heineke. He writes, Mike, We've just witnessed another game in which Heineke played his balls off. He dragged the team to a win with yet more highlight reel plays. There you go. Despite many other areas of the team seemingly doing their best to conspire against him. Sure, he has pretty clear limitations, but he's a flat-out baller. He consistently creates something out of nothing, and he's fun as heck to watch. And yet, once again, I go on Twitter only to see a litany of Heineke played great, but he's not the answer type tweets what am I missing here, Al? What more do these people want? Uh, excellent question, Mike. I'm not sure what these people want. I don't know what's going on in these people's lives to make them continually act like this when Heineke plays well. There's no appeasing the Taylor Heineke deniers, the Taylor Heineke haters, the tay haters, as I call them, the Taters. Uh, they consistently move the goalposts, these people do, okay? They constantly rewrite the standard by which Taylor Heineke will be a success. There's no pleasing these people. They are impossible to please. Here's the thing, okay? What does it matter right now whether Taylor Heineke is the long-term franchise quarterback who Washington has been seeking for decades? That to me is much more an off-season conversation than that is a regular season conversation. Conversation. Like the conversation matters. I'm not trying to tell you that it doesn't, but why does that question have to be answered right now? Okay. There's a season going on. We can grapple with whether Heineke is a long term quarterback in the offseason. We don't have to contend with that until the offseason. We can touch on it during the regular season, but like, how about you just enjoy what he's doing? How about you see where what he's doing goes? Okay. This is a journey that we're on right now. This is a wild ride that we're in the midst of right now. And where this ride takes us, where this all ends, we have no idea. Because this ride already has taken us far further than we ever could have reasonably anticipated. We can wrestle with the long-term questions with Heineke come the offseason. I ask you, why must every Taylor Heineke game come back to what he can be long-term? Why is that the immediate reaction for the Taters? Uh, I ask you, that question. Well, if you have questions or concerns regarding your skin, uh, contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. He is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Washington football team fan. I know that he's happy on this Monday. He's a big listener of this podcast. And operating under the direction of Dr. Verghese is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The Institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. And specific to skin cancer treatment, the Mid Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offers something very special and cutting edge superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary, it's a non surgical skin cancer treatment. That's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT unlike many other dermatology practices in the area. And SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401 or visit MidAtlanticSkin.com. That's MidAtlanticSkin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, let's get to it. No time to waste, not on this show. Time now for the front five. My five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons in week four. Takeaway number one, Taylor Heineke, who Ron Rivera last Monday said that he wanted to quote, do things in more of a game manager way, end quote, made two of the most baller, playmaker, Non game manager plays that you'll ever see in being very good once again. Oh, the irony of this game. So, yes, it was last Monday that Ron, during his day after the game Zoom press conference off the loss at the Buffalo Bills in week three, said that he wanted Heineke to, quote, do things in more of a game manager way, end quote. We talked about that comment on the podcast at length last week. Uh, To me, all that Ron was saying was that he wanted Heineke to play smart and not take unnecessary risks. Well, the concept of the unnecessary risk is a funny thing. So much of what is a necessary risk and what isn't a necessary risk is retroactive. If a play works out, nobody ever talks about how necessary the risk was. And sure enough, Taylor Heineke had two incredible Touchdown passes in the fourth quarter on Sunday. So each play, was it an unnecessary risk? I don't know. It worked out. So you tell me. Uh, Number one, Taylor Heineke, a fourth quarter, first and 10, 17 yard under center play action touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin on a miracle play as Heineke somehow escaped being sacked by edge rusher Dante Fowler Jr., and then took a shot from linebacker Foyer Aluikin while heaving up a prayer into the end zone. Now, yes, there was some luck involved in this. There's no doubt about that. Heaving up the prayer, McLaurin coming down with the prayer. But don't lose sight of Taylor Heineke escaping being sacked by Dante Fowler and delivering the football of being blasted by a Lewickin. Spectacular Taylor Heineke fourth quarter touchdown pass. Number two, Taylor Heineke, a third and seven touchdown. 30-yard shotgun touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick with 33 seconds left in the fourth quarter on a broken play on which Heineke backpedaled and moved to his left and then threw across both hash marks to McKissick, who caught the ball at the 30, broke through an attempted tackle by linebacker Deion Jones, exploded down the right sideline, and then made an incredible leap toward the front right pylon for a 34-30 Washington lead. Two jaw-dropping, good God, did he really just do that touchdown passes, two incredibly clutch touchdown passes, and two touchdown passes that were part of an overall performance that was really good. But here was Ron Rivera during his post-game press conference on Sunday on how Taylor Heineke did in this game from the perspective of being more... Of a game manager.
2: Well, I thought he managed it well. Obviously, Um, you know the big thing is, and we talk about is make a play when you have to, and he made several. So we appreciate that. That's for sure. You know, Taylor's just one of those dynamic players that knows how to make plays. And and, as I said, nothing is ever is ever done with him. I mean, he's just going to continue to work.
1: Yes, he is. Heineke played well for a fifth time in six games, regular season and postseason as a Washington quarterback. He went 23 of 33 for 290 yards. That's 8.79 yards per pass attempt, three touchdowns, and no interceptions. He had five carries for 43 yards. He was sacked just once, which was the result of a zero-yard scramble, and he led a fourth-quarter comeback and game-winning drive. Yes, Heineke was guilty of some more near picks. And yes, Heineke did what he did against the Falcons defense that isn't very good. Falcons through week three of this season just 30th out of 32 NFL teams in total defense per football outsiders DVOA metric. But Heineke also did what he did in this game despite Washington losing Logan Thomas, Antonio Gibson, Brandon Sheriff, Deami Brown, and Cam Sims to injury at various points in the game. Heineke did what he did despite Washington's defense being awful on third downs. Again, Washington allowed the Falcons to go 10-16 on third downs. And Heineke did what he did despite Dustin Hopkins missing two extra point attempts. Rod Rivera during his postgame press conference on Sunday on Taylor Heineke.
2: Well, that's exactly it. He's got tremendous ability to deliver and hats off to him. You know, he, he, he's a courageous dude who plays all out. And uh, his teammates, you know, they, they feed off his energy, especially the offensive guys really kind of get him and understand that no play is dead. So you see the way they keep working. Great illustration as J.D. McKissick. You know, Taylor's working, is working. He's off to the far left. He sees J.D. to the right and throws it out there. So that's, a, that's who he is.
1: We are seeing more and more that that is precisely the case, the good from Taylor Heineke. So the drive that gave us Taylor Heineke's third touchdown pass and a game-winning drive. This was Washington's ninth offensive drive. Seven plays, 76 yards. Took just one minute, 14 seconds of game time. Started at the Washington 24 with a minute 47 left in the fourth quarter. And Washington trailing 30-28 resulted in a Taylor Heineke touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick. The second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second and 10, 24 yards shotgun play action completion to DeAndre Carter. The third snap of the drive, Terry McLaurin had a drop on a Taylor Heineke first and 10 shotgun incompletion completion that you could argue should have been a lost fumble by McLaurin. For all of Terry's heroics in this game, he almost had a brutal giveaway during this drive. But then the next snap, Taylor Heineke, a second and 10, 19-yard shotgun completion to Adam Humphreys. The drive that resulted in Taylor Heineke's second touchdown pass, To Terry McLaurin. That fourth quarter touchdown pass. Fourth snap of that drive. Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 11-yard. Under center play action completion to Jarrett Patterson. Sixth snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke, a second and seven, 10-yard. Under center play action scramble. The ninth snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke, a second and 16, 23-yard. Shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. The 12th snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown. Taylor Heineke, a third and nine 10 yard shotgun completion to JD McKissick. The drive that gave us Taylor Heineke's first touchdown pass, Washington's third offensive drive, seven plays, 77 yards, resulted in Taylor Heineke's second quarter, third and eight, 33 yard shotgun touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin. Ensuing extra point cut Washington's deficit to 10 7. Second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second and seven, 19 yard shotgun play action completion to De'Ami Brown, who did a nice job on this play because De'Ami made the catch despite the former Washington corner Fabian Moreau being guilty of a pass interference penalty that Washington declined. The fourth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second and 11, 21-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. Washington's fourth offensive drive, seven plays, 63 yards, resulted in Antonio Gibson. Second quarter, first and goal, two-yard under center handoff, touchdown run for a 13-10 Washington lead as uh, Dustin Hopkins missed the extra point attempt. Oh, we'll get to him, trust me. But first snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, eight-yard shotgun play action scramble. Good run, but I did think that Heineke on that run started his slide a bit too early. He's doing that a little bit. I don't know if he's doing that out of precaution, you know, doing that so that he doesn't take a shot, although he did take another shot uh, in this game. But that is a nice pickup on a first and 10 and eight-yard run. Sixth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a second and 12, 16-yard shotgun play-action completion to Ricky Seals-Jones, who made a really nice move to get by linebacker Foye Oluwakin and corner Avery Williams for the yak necessary for a first down. Seven snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown, Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 20-yard shotgun play-action scramble on which Washington got two additional yards. Thanks to a holding penalty on guess who? Yes, our old pal Fabian Moreau, who is holding Terry McLaurin. Uh, Washington's sixth offensive drive, 14 plays, 73 yards, resulted in Dustin Hopkins' third quarter 21-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 23-22. The first snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 20-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. The second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 11-yard under center play action completion, to Antonio Gibson on a screen. The sixth snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, a fourth and five, 10-yard shotgun completion to Curtis Samuel. How about the cojones? An old Don Ron and going forward on the fourth and five, and it paid off. Taylor Heineke with a huge completion to Curtis Samuel in that spot. And on and on we can go. Washington's second offensive drive started late in the first quarter, did result in an early second quarter turnover on downs. Third snap of the drive, the penultimate snap of the first quarter, Taylor Heineke a first and 10, nine yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin on a laser of a throw by Heineke. Now, like I said, there was some bad from Taylor Heineke. I am not blind to Taylor Heineke's flaws. I am not blind to the bad moments for Taylor Heineke in these games. He was off on some throws early in the game. It was actually kind of disturbing. Haneke did not get off to a good start, and he kind of felt like, oh, boy, is this going to be one of these days on which the guy just is off? No, he got right as the game went on. But on Washington's first offensive drive, which resulted in a first quarter punt, the second snap of the drive, Taylor Haneke threw high and behind Terry McLaurin on a second and three shotgunning completion. The sixth snap of the drive, Taylor Haneke, a third and five deep shotgunning completion, on which he badly missed an open. Terry McLaurin. Uh, Taylor Heineke did have some issues running with the football. Washington's second offensive drive started late in the first quarter, resulted in an early second quarter turnover on downs. Fifth snap of the drive and the first snap of the second quarter. Taylor Heineke took a nasty shot from linebacker Foye Oluwakin on the first and 10 under center boot scramble that technically was a sack for zero yards. Uh, seventh snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke a third and seven six-yard shotgun scramble. Heineke's had a few of these scrambles on which he comes up just one yard short of the first down. Uh, Taylor Heineke was guilty of some near picks in this game. The most prominent one happened on Washington's sixth offensive drive. This was the one that resulted in a Dustin Hopkins third quarter 21-yard field goal. The 13th snap of the drive and the snap right before the field goal on a third and goal at the two, Taylor Heineke got blasted by safety Eric Harris and nearly threw an end zone interception to safety Duran Harmon on a shotgun play action in completion. Look, there's no such thing as a perfectly quarterbacked game. Taylor Heineke delivered once again with his performance in this game. Taylor Heineke bounced back from his subpar performance in the loss at the Buffalo Bills in Week 3. Taylor Heineke shoved it right in the faces of the Taylor Heineke haters, the Taters, once again. It's got to feel good for Taylor Heineke to keep proving people wrong. Just like it feels good to look outside your front door and see a great looking lawn. And if you're ready for your lawn to look the way that you've always wanted your lawn to look, listen up because I have a special offer for you with which you can save about $100 courtesy of Weedman. Weedman cares for your lawn, so you don't have to. Weedman provides what your lawn needs to look great fertilization, weed control, aeration, seeding, and a variety of other services. If you don't have the time or the knowledge to make your lawn look great, no worries. Let Weedman take care of your lawn. Weedman is a national network of locally owned franchises, so you'll receive the personal service that you deserve. When you call up Weedman, when you email Weedman, Weedman does guess what? Answers. You promptly, okay? Weedman does what it says it's going to do. When you call Weedman, you're speaking to someone in an office in your area, not someone somewhere in like the Midwest. You're not waiting for 30 minutes to speak to someone. And Weedman knows your area. So Weedman actually has, wait for it, real answers that have meaning in your area. Uh, if you have, say, a specific area on your lawn that needs attention, Weedman knows will take care of that area. What you need done, Weedman will do. You're not dealing with some huge faceless corporation that treats you like a number. Weedman uses superior products that really improve your soil. And Weedman only treats what needs to be treated. If you're not satisfied with your lawn, if you're not satisfied with who is treating your lawn, make the switch to Weedman. Weedman's products are of the highest quality. Weedman does not cut corners. And now to that special offer. So a beautiful spring lawn actually starts in the fall. And so Weed Man right now is offering something special to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast, a fall tune-up at a great price, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. That's about $100 off the usual price for those services. The price is a steal. The price applies to lawns of up to 6,000 square feet. So here's what you do. Call 571-340-3400. When you call, make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. Again, an aeration and two fall fertilization services for just $209. Again, about $100 off the usual price for those services. That phone number again, 571-340-3400. And make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast so you get the special deal. I want you to Get that deal. Save yourself about a hundred bucks. You can also Google Weedman and make a web request. Just make sure that you mention the Al Galdi podcast. Weedman, a great lawn at a great price with great personal service. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons. Takeaway number two: Washington's defense was really bad again. Uh, Washington's defense was really bad for a second consecutive game and was at least disappointing for a fourth time in as many games this season. The Washington defense through four games, through about a quarter of the 17-game regular season, has yet to have a truly good game. This defense, which was supposed to be so good, has yet to have anything close to a good game so far this season. You start with the third down defense, which is an absolute disaster. Washington allowed the Falcons to go 10 of 16 on third downs. Washington, as you and I speak on this Monday, my friends, dead last in the NFL this season in lowest opponents third down efficiency. Do you know What opponents now are on third downs against the Washington defense this season 59.7%, 37 of 62. As former Washington head coach Steve Spurrier said many years ago, not very good. No, it's not. Uh, Washington allowed quarterback Matt Ryan, who through week three of this season was just 29th out of 32 qualified quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR to have four touchdown passes versus no interceptions. Now, Washington did hold Ryan to just 283 yards on 42 pass attempts. That's 6.74 yards per pass attempt. That's good. Uh, Washington did hold Ryan to just 25 completions on 42 pass attempts. That works out to a completion percentage of 59.52. That's good from a Washington perspective. But Ryan had, again, four touchdown passes versus no interceptions. Washington also registered just one sack off Matt Ryan having been sacked seven times over the Falcons' first three games of the season. We'll see what the pressure stats end up being for this game. But the pass rush sure didn't seem to be great. I mean, you tell me. We all watched this game. Were you overwhelmed by Washington's pass rush in this game? Had its moments. But overall, another underwhelming game, at the very least, I thought... From a Washington pass rushing perspective, we'll see what the pressure stats are. Sometimes our eyes can deceive us. Uh, And you also had this. Washington got shredded by running back Cordero Patterson. Everyone on the planet knows that Cordero Patterson is an all-purpose threat, the likes of which you don't have many in the NFL. And yet Patterson in this game, five receptions for 82 yards and three touchdowns on six targets. And he had six carries. For 34 yards. Understand, the Falcons through week three were dead last in the NFL in total offense per Football Outsiders DVOA metric, and yet Washington allowed that offense to do as it did on Sunday. This was a second consecutive game in which a bad offense got right against this Washington defense. Buffalo's offense was struggling, and then we got what we got in the loss at the Bills in week three. The Falcons' offense was struggling, and then we got what we got in this win, at Atlanta in Week Four, but this was another shameful performance for this Washington defense. Ron Rivera during his postgame press conference on Sunday on Washington's defense.
2: Well, I, I think we weren't consistent um, with with some of the stuff that we, we 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 need to be better at in terms of coverage. You know, our, our guys are competing and trying some things, but. You know, um, we dropped a couple of coverages when we shouldn't have. You know, and, and again, as, as I said, we'll go back, we'll look at it, and, and we'll really evaluate it once we get a chance to see exactly how those things happened.
1: Among the many bad moments for Washington's defense, the drive that resulted in Matt Ryan's first touchdown pass, Falcons' third offensive drive, fifth snap on a second quarter, second and three for the Falcons at the Washington forty-two. Matt Ryan, a forty-two yard shotgun play-action touchdown bomb. To running back Cordero Patterson, who inexplicably was wide open behind Washington's defense and had all day to wait for what was actually an underthrown ball by Ryan. That to me was as galling as anything about that play. It wasn't just that Patterson was open, it was that he was so open that he basically could set up a camp, you know, and wait for the football to arrive and then waltz into the end zone. Ensuing extra point gave the Falcons a 10 0 lead. The drive that resulted in Matt Ryan's second touchdown pass. Falcons fifth offensive drive resulted in Matt Ryan's third and four 12-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Cordero Patterson with 14 seconds left in the second quarter as Landon Collins failed miserably on an attempted tackle. The ensuing extra point Gave the Falcons a 17-13 lead. The third snap of the drive, Torrey McTire, who played a lot because Benjamin St. Juice was inactive due to a concussion, committed a third and eight, 28-yard pass interference penalty in covering receiver Calvin Ridley. The ninth snap of the drive, Matt Ryan, a third and 13-17-yard shotgun sprint-out completion to Calvin Ridley. The drive that resulted in Matt Ryan's third touchdown pass. Falcons' sixth offensive drive was their first offensive drive of the second half. Resulted in Matt Ryan's third quarter, third and 13, 14-yard shotgun touchdown pass. to guess who? Cordero Patterson, who caught the ball over Kendall Fuller for a 23-19 Falcons lead. The Falcons did fail on their attempt at a two-point conversion. Third snap of the drive, William Jackson the third, a first and 10, 27-yard pass interference penalty in covering receiver Calvin Ridley. Sixth snap of the drive off Washington, burning the first of the team's three-second half timeouts. Matt Ryan had a third and three, seven-yard shotgun completion to tight end Hayden Hurst, and Cole Holcomb got banged up on the play. But that was, to me, almost hysterical You burn a second half timeout on defense, which you should almost never do, to say nothing of doing it early in the second half as Washington did there. And then you still give up the third down conversion. Ryan with that third and three, seven yard connection with Hurst. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, The drive that resulted in Matt Ryan's fourth touchdown pass. Washington could not get off the field on a third down on this drive. This was the Falcons' seventh offensive drive. 13 plays, 83 yards. Started in the third quarter, resulted in Matt Ryan's third and three 70-yard shotgun touchdown pass to running back Mike Davis on the first snap of the fourth quarter. Four Washington players failed on attempted tackles on the play. This was pathetic. John Bostick, fail. Bobby McCain, fail. Kendall Fuller, fail. Duron Payne, fail. Vail, ensuing extra point gave the Falcons a 30 22 lead. Third snap of the drive, Matt Ryan, a third and seven, 14 yard shotgun completion to tight end Kyle Pitts. Sixth snap of the drive, Matt Ryan, a third and one, seven yard shotgun completion to receiver Calvin Ridley. Ninth snap of the drive, Calvin Ridley had a drop on what would have been a difficult catch, but a catch that could have been made on a Matt Ryan, third and two offset eye deep in completion. Tenth snap of the drive, Chase Young, the fourth and two. 15-yard roughing the passer penalty for a shot to Matt Ryan's head and neck area, negating a sack. Uh, This was some snap, and I know there was a lot of anger over this call. And no doubt, it looks ridiculous (laughs) that you get a roughing the passer on a play on which all you do is send the quarterback down on one knee. But we know the way things are now in the NFL when you hit a quarterback in the head and neck area, you make yourself vulnerable to being flagged for roughing the passer. You don't have to like it, okay? I don't love it. But this is the way the NFL is. And this is the way that the NFL has been for years now. So you need to adapt or you perish. You can't make that hit. And I put hit in quotation marks. What is so funny about that, what is so ironic about that snap, right, is that Chase didn't hit Matt Ryan hard enough to knock him down, okay? Like, Ryan's right knee went down, but that was it, and yet Chase Young got flagged for roughing the passer, so I'm sympathetic to what happened there, but you still can't commit that penalty, And yet Chase Young did. Chase Young has had a lot of penalties so far this season. Just like, by the way, William Jackson III has had a lot of penalties so far this season. And they're not always justified. And you certainly don't love all of them. But the idea is, here we go again. You know, that that play, that snap, because it wasn't an official play, that snap, that's what Chase Young is going to be most remembered for in this game. That's a problem. Okay, like even if what happened wasn't justified, even if what happened was a football crime, in your opinion, that can't be what Chase Young is most remembered for from this game. And yet it is. Uh, Falcons first offensive drive this was the first offensive drive of the game 15 plays 68 yards consumed eight minutes off the clock did not result in a touchdown as Washington for the first time in four games this season did not allow a touchdown on the opposing team's first offensive drive but this was a mammoth drive as I just said and this drive did result in points young way first quarter 25 yard field goal for a three nothing Falcons lead Washington allowed Matt Ryan On this drive to go 5 of 7 for 54 yards. Fifth snap of the drive. Kendall Fuller got beat by receiver Calvin Ridley on a Matt Ryan second and 8. 13-yard under center play action completion to Ridley. 12th snap of the drive. Matt Ryan a 3rd and 10. 15-yard shotgun completion to tight end Kyle Pitts. Ryan had all day to throw and threw off running up and to his right. Shameful defensive performance again for Washington. Washington. And take a listen to this. Ron Rivera, even though Washington won, was not at all giddy, wasn't even necessarily happy during his postgame press conference. I very much got a vibe from Ron during his postgame presser of, it's great that we won, but we are a really flawed team right now. And by the way, that's the truth. But here was some more of Ron from his postgame presser on Sunday.
2: I told the guys, let's be realistic and be honest about the things that we've got to correct. You know, you're always happy about a win. You really are. You should be, at least I believe you should. But you also have to be realistic. There are some things that we have to correct. Some things we'll go back and we'll work on uh, because they need to be worked on, to be very honest. They really do. And we have to be honest with ourselves because if not, you know, we'll, we'll run into a wall very quickly.
1: Yes, you will. Things continue to, shall we say, not go well. For Washington's defense. Well, we always hope that things are going well in your life, but we know that it's not always the case that things are going well in your life. Bad things happen, and I want to let you know about a law firm that is ready to represent you if you've been wronged. Paulson and Nace. Paulson and Nace handles complex personal injury, medical negligence, and wrongful death cases. The services of Paulson and Nace are available in DC, Maryland, and West Virginia. Paulson and Nace is a family law firm. The Naces are DMV through and through, big Washington football team fans. Paulson and Nace has decades of experience trying cases to jury verdicts and fighting for those injured through no fault of their own. Barry Nace and Chris Nace are both past presidents of the DC trial lawyers. I actually heard from Chris Nace off the big Washington football team victory at the Atlanta Falcons on Sunday. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. trial lawyers and has just tried two cases in D.C. Look, I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. These are good people and smart people who are excellent at what they do. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel as if you've been wronged, if you have a complex personal injury, medical negligence, or wrongful death case, or you think that you may have one but aren't sure, call Paulson and NACE and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Yeah, you're obligated to nothing. You can call Paulson and NACE at 202-902-7611. That's 202 902 7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Make sure that you let Paulson and Nace know that you heard about Paulson and Nace on the Al Galdi podcast. And then run by Paulson and Nace what you have going on. Again, this is a no obligation appointment. The phone number is 202 902 7611. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let their family Take care of yours. It's the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 34 30 win at the Atlanta Falcons. Takeaway number three boy, did Washington get banged up in this game. Uh, We have no idea about the severity of these injuries, but this game became absurd with how many Washington players got banged up. Uh, Logan Thomas suffered a hamstring injury, Brandon Sheriff suffered a knee injury. Antonio Gibson suffered some sort of ailment. Uh, De'Ami Brown suffered a knee injury. Cam Sims suffered a hamstring injury. Terry McLaurin got banged up to some degree. Jonathan Allen got banged up late in the game. John Bostic suffered a shoulder injury. Cole Holcomb got banged up. Torrey McTire got banged up. You know, some of these may not be of much consequence. Others may be of severe consequence. We just don't know. But geez, those are a lot of names that I just went through. And those are just the names that we're aware of. Inevitably, coming out of a game, you get guys who suffered things that you had no idea about during the game, like Benjamin St. Juice. So he was inactive for this game due to a concussion. We had no idea coming out of the loss at the Buffalo Bills in week three that Benjamin St. Juice might be dealing with a concussion. As best as we can tell, The Logan Thomas and Brandon Sheriff injuries appear to be the most concerning, but I stress that word appear because again, we just don't know. But in a game in which Curtis Samuel finally made his Washington debut of having missed the first three games of the season due to that groin injury, Washington may have lost multiple key players. Uh, I wish I had more I could tell you about all this stuff. I wish we could sink our teeth into more of this, but we just can't. But This really became a big theme in this game. All of these Washington players who exited the game at various points due to injury. Takeaway number four, exceptional playmaking by Terry McLaurin and J.D. McKissick. I sung the praises of Taylor Heineke. I sung the praises of Big Tay. But let's also give credit to the two recipients of those big fourth quarter touchdown passes. So Terry McLaurin, six receptions for 123 yards and two touchdowns on 13 targets. For Washington in this game. A monster performance for Terry McLaurin, although it was not a flawless performance. More on that in just a bit here. But the drive that resulted in Terry McLaurin's second touchdown reception, Washington's eighth offensive drive resulted in that Taylor Heineke fourth quarter, first and 10, 17 yard under center play action touchdown pass to Terry on the miracle play. Heineke evades the pressure. I'm still not sure how. And then McLaurin, credit him, makes a diving forward catch in the end zone. I know there's been some talk of McLaurin may have been interfered with. Uh, It's possible. I I look back at it. I didn't see it, but I'll go back and and check it uh, after the show here. But whatever the case may be, awesome play by Terry McLaurin. Now he, on the seventh snap of the drive, did commit a first and 10 five-yard illegal formation penalty. But also for McLaurin on this drive, the ninth snap, Taylor Heineke had a second and 16, 23-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. Uh, The drive that resulted in Terry's first touchdown reception, Washington's third offensive drive. Taylor Heineke, second quarter, third and eight, 33-yard shotgun touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin. The fourth snap of that drive, Taylor Heineke had a second at 11, 21-yard shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. Uh, Washington's sixth offensive drive resulted in Dustin Hopkins' third quarter, 21-yard field goal. The first snap of that drive, Taylor Heineke, first and 10, 20-yard Shotgun play action completion to Terry McLaurin. Uh, Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted in the Antonio Gibson second quarter first and goal two yard under center handoff touchdown run, seven snap of the drive, and the snap right before the touchdown. Taylor Heineke, a first and 10, 20 yard shotgun play action scramble on which Washington got two additional yards thanks to a holding penalty on the former Washington corner Fabian Moreau, who was guilty of holding Terry McLaurin. So even in a spot like that, Terry gives you some extra yardage. Now, Terry McLaurin almost had a killer lost fumble. I mentioned this earlier. Uh, the drive that resulted in that Taylor Heineke third touchdown pass of the game, his game-winning drive, the touchdown pass to J.D. McKissick on that miracle play. Uh, you on this drive had Terry on the third snap having what ends up being a drop on a Taylor Heineke first and 10 shotgun incompletion that you could argue should have been a lost fumble on McLaurin, Uh, the officials, I thought, rather generously ruled that Terry McLaurin had not completed the process of the catch. The whole process of the catch stuff is always so confusing. But, you know, the initial ruling was an incompletion. Had the initial ruling been a lost fumble, I think it's quite possible that the replay review would have upheld that. I think that might have been a play on which whatever the initial ruling was, was going to be what the ultimate ruling ended up being. So, you know, if that's a lost fumble by Terry, this is a much different narrative when it comes to Terry McLaurin's game. But that was not a lost fumble by Terry McLaurin. And then J.D. McKissick. So he has seven carries for 15 yards. One of the carries was a 10-yarder, so his other six carries totaled just five yards. But he also had five receptions for 44 yards and a touchdown on five targets. And what is unforgettable is that touchdown catch that proved to be the game-winning score. Taylor Heineke, third and seven, 30-yard shotgun touchdown pass with 33 seconds left in the fourth quarter on a broken play. McKissick on the play catches the ball at the 30, breaks through an attempted tackle by linebacker Deion Jones, explodes down the right sideline, and then makes an incredible leap toward the front right pylon for a 34-30 Washington lead. J.D. McKissick is a playmaker, okay? I know he's not the sexiest skill position guy on Washington's offense, but he had the big catch in the win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football in Week 2. Remember, McKissick in that game had that first and 10 56-yard reception on the snap right before the big Taylor Heineke touchdown pass to Ricky Seals-Jones. McKissick on that 56-yard reception just flying down the right sideline off scorching Giants linebacker Tay Crowder. And now in this win at the Atlanta Falcons, J.D. McKissick comes through with one of the great catch and runs that you'll see. Interesting, right? For a second consecutive game, a Washington running back has an excellent touchdown catch on a fabulous catch and run. Antonio Gibson had that 73-yard catch and run for a touchdown in the loss at the Buffalo Bills in Week 3. And J.D. McKissick comes through with his excellent 30-yard touchdown catch in this win at the Atlanta Falcons in Week 4. And that was not the only big catch that J.D. McKissick had in this game. The drive that resulted in that second Taylor Heineke touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin, so the fourth-quarter touchdown pass on the miracle play. The 12th snap of the drive and the snap right before the touchdown was a Taylor Heineke third-and-nine 10-yard shotgun completion to JD McKissick. And takeaway number five, uh, we saw greatness from Washington special teams, and we saw hideousness from Washington special teams. So we'll start with the greatness. DeAndre Carter returning the opening kickoff of the second half, 101 yards for a touchdown. Obviously, a tremendous play. Uh the kickoff return is tied for the longest kickoff return. In Washington history, Brian Mitchell and Rashad Ross each had a 101 yard kickoff return for a touchdown. DeAndre Carter to me has been a very solid return man for Washington already this season. He clearly has been an upgrade over what we had with Steven Sims and to a lesser extent Isaiah Wright on punt returns last year. And you're already getting more from DeAndre Carter than you got from Danny Johnson on kickoff returns last season. Washington signed Carter as an unrestricted free agent this past April 1st. He has had a reputation for being a good return man. The issue with him has been ball security, but that was an explosive play. 101-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. You know, DeAndre Carter's resume is such that he's done more damage as a punt return man than as a kickoff return man. Carter came to Washington having averaged 21.84 yards over 45 career regular season kickoff returns. It's really nothing special, but what he did on that kickoff return to begin the second half on Sunday, obviously, was special. Uh, Carter also had a first quarter 28-yard kickoff return and a second quarter 23-yard kickoff return. He had a second quarter six-yard punt return on his only punt return of the game. And then there was Dustin Hopkins. Hopkins delivers. No, Hopkins did not deliver. Now, he made his only field goal attempt. It was a chip shot, but he missed two extra Point attempts. Hopkins missed the extra point attempt that followed Antonio Gibson's second quarter touchdown run for a 13-10 lead. Hopkins missed the extra point attempt that followed DeAndre Carter's second half opening kickoff return for a touchdown for a 19-17 Washington lead. Hopkins' two missed extra point attempts meant that the Taylor Heineke fourth quarter miracle touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin only cut Washington's deficit to 30-28, necessitating that Washington go for two, and Washington failed on that two-point conversion attempt. Washington had to score again because Dustin Hopkins missed the two extra point attempts. And I don't know about you, but as Washington was in the midst of that drive that proved to be the game-winning drive, that resulted in Taylor Heineke's second miracle fourth-quarter touchdown pass, the 30-yarder to J.D. McKissick. I was saying to myself, if this game comes down to a Dustin Hopkins field goal attempt, just like, right, Washington's first win of this season came down to a Dustin Hopkins field goal attempt, uh, what's going to happen? And if this guy misses again, he's not going to be on the team anymore. At least he shouldn't be on the team anymore. Now, thankfully for Hopkins' sake, The game did not come down to him having to kick a field goal to win the game. But, man, that thought was going through my mind. Is this going to come down to Dustin Hopkins, who already has missed two extra point attempts? He made a third-quarter 21-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 23-22. I mean, personally, I'm kind of exhausted with the Dustin Hopkins conversation. I mean, most other teams would have parted with this guy years ago. He, for whatever reason, has lasted here for so long. He's been with Washington since September 2015. Nobody has anything bad to say about the guy personally. It just remains a mystery how he has lasted so long, despite having been so mediocre, and especially given the current regime's penchant for talking up competition, how it is that he hasn't even had to compete to remain as Washington's kicker. Like It would be one thing if he had to battle someone this past summer and won the battle. That didn't happen. He had a mediocre year last year, and yet he was just gifted the Washington kicker job once again for this season. And so far, it had gone pretty well, although not exceptionally well, because he almost blew it in what ended up being that win over the New York Giants at FedEx Field on Thursday Night Football in week two. Remember, Hopkins missed a 48-yard field goal attempt to win the game as time expired in the fourth quarter, but the miss ended up not counting thanks to Interior defensive lineman Dexter Lawrence committing a five-yard offside penalty. Hopkins then connected on a game-winning 43-yard field goal on the final snap in the fourth quarter for a 30-29 win. And now you have what went down on Sunday at the Falcons with him missing not one but two extra point attempts, putting Washington in a real bind in that fourth quarter. Again, the Taylor Heineke second touchdown pass to Terry McLaurin only cut Washington's deficit to 30-28. So there you go, the front five, my five biggest takeaways from the Washington football team's 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons. Takeaway number one, Taylor Heineke, who Ron Rivera just last Monday said that he wanted to, quote, do things in more of a game manager way, end quote, made two of the most baller, playmaker, non-game manager plays that you'll ever see and being very good once again. Talking, of course, about the two fourth quarter touchdown passes. Takeaway number two, Washington's defense really bad again. Takeaway number three, boy, did Washington get banged up in this game. Takeaway number four, exceptional playmaking by Terry McLaurin and JD McKissick. And takeaway number five, we saw greatness from Washington special teams via the DeAndre Carter second half opening 100 yard kickoff return for a touchdown. But we also saw hideousness from Washington special teams via Dustin Hopkins missing two extra point attempts. Much more on Washington's win at the Falcons, including my thoughts on the Washington debut of Curtis Samuel and on Bobby McCain sounding off on the media. I'll get to that and much more after this. Washington football team season is in full swing and there's no need to exhaust yourself searching all over the internet to find Washington football team tickets. That's because TickPick that's T I C K P I C K is the original no fee ticket site and the only ticket site that you'll ever need as your go to for all NFL tickets. TickPick got rid of all of those awful service fees that the other ticket sites charge. This allows TickPick to guarantee the best prices on all of its NFL tickets. Don't believe this? Look, if you can find better prices for the same seats on another ticket site. TickPick will give you 110% of the difference in the purchase price. We're all excited to watch the WFT this season. Whether you're looking to watch Young Sweat and the defense battle Mahomes and the Chiefs or Brady and the Bucks at home or wanting to travel with McLaurin and the guys to watch them play at Rodgers and the Pack or at Carr and the Raiders or you want to hit up the division games, TickPick has you covered. Again, TickPick guarantees the best prices on all of its NFL tickets, no more of those ridiculous service fees. So here's what you do. Visit TickPick.com slash right now and use the promo code Galdi to save $10 on your first order of Washington football team tickets. That's T-I-C-K-P-I-C-K.com slash Galdi and use the promo code Galdi. TickPick.com slash Galdi and make sure that you use the promo code
0: Galdi. Just go to Indeed.com slash Blue Wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's indeed.com/slash Blue Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: We get back to post-gaming. The Washington football team improving to two and two with a 34-30 win at the Atlanta Falcons on Sunday afternoon. So this game did mark the debut of Curtis Samuel as a Washington receiver. He, of course, missed the first three games of Washington's season due to a groin injury, but he was activated off the reserve injured list on Friday. So Samuel ended up spending uh, less than a month on the reserve injured list. Could have been worse, ended up being just for the minimum three weeks of games missed. Uh, Samuel was on the reserve injured list from September 10th to October 1st and Samuel in this win at the Falcons finished with four receptions for 19 yards on four targets and playing on 37% of Washington's offensive snaps so he was on a pitch count but with what he did so like I said four receptions for 19 yards on four targets that sounds underwhelming and it kind of sort of was but it's worth pointing this out three of the four receptions were receptions for first downs. So that matters. That's why you can't always just go by catches and yards, right? It matters the specifics of the catches and the yards. Washington's first offensive drive did result in a first-quarter punt for the third snap of the drive. Taylor Heineke, a third-and-three, four-yard shotgun completion. To Curtis Samuel, Washington's second offensive drive started late in the first quarter, resulted in an early second quarter turnover on downs. For the second snap of the drive, Taylor Heineke, late first quarter, second and four, six-yard shotgun play action completion to Curtis Samuel. And then the catch of the game for Samuel, Washington's sixth offensive drive, 14 plays, 73 yards, resulted in Dustin Hopkins' third quarter, 21-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 23-22. The sixth snap of that drive, Taylor Heineke had a fourth and 5 10-yard shotgun completion to Curtis Samuel. So, I mean, is that ultimately the impact you want from Curtis Samuel? No, but three catches for first downs, that's not nothing. Like, there's value in that. There's production there, and uh, Curtis Samuel did bring it, and obviously we are hoping for much more from Curtis Samuel moving forward. I mean, you really could make the case the most important thing for Curtis Samuel is that he stayed healthy in this game, and we'll see if that ended up being the case. Uh, We got no word during the game. That Samuel was not healthy. Uh, I do want to mention what Antonio Gibson did in this win at the Falcons. So he was listed as questionable for the game due to a shin ailment. He, in the fourth quarter, seemed to suffer some injury, but Gibson in the game was productive again as a ball carrier. 14 carries for 63 yards and a touchdown. 4.5 yards per carry. And what is really impressing me about Antonio Gibson is these impressive yards per carries that he's authoring game in, game out, They're not a function of like one big chunk play and then you have a bunch of other runs that give you nothing. You know, Saquon Barkley to me is guilty of that a lot. Antonio Gibson is consistently giving you four, five, six yards a carry, if not more. Uh, Washington's fourth offensive drive resulted in Gibson's touchdown run, the second quarter, first and goal, two yard under center handoff touchdown run for a 13-10 Washington lead as Dustin Hopkins missed the extra point attempt. Second snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a second and two, six-yard shotgun run on a read option looking play. Fourth snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a first and five, six-yard shotgun handoff run. Uh, Washington's First offensive drive resulted in a first quarter punt. First snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a first and 10, 7-yard under center, handoff run. Washington's second offensive drive started late in the first quarter, resulted in an early second quarter turnover on downs. First snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a late first quarter, first and 10, 6-yard. I-formation handoff run, fourth snap of the drive, final snap of the first quarter, Antonio Gibson, a second and 1, 5-yard Shotgun handoff run, a snap of the drive. Antonio Gibson did get stuffed. Uh, this resulted in the turnover on downs. Gibson, on a 4th and 1 shotgun handoff run, got stuffed for no gain. Interior defensive lineman Grady Jarrett penetrating through Washington's offensive line to make half of the tackle. But on the 6th Washington offensive drive, the one that gave us the Dustin Hopkins 3rd quarter 21-yard field goal that cut Washington's deficit to 23-22. The 4th snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a 2nd and 10 five-yard under center toss run, seven snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a first and 10, six-yard under center handoff run, a snap of the drive, Antonio Gibson, a second and four, eight-yard shotgun handoff run. I want to take it through those carries to illustrate my point. It's not that Gibson is just giving you one big run and then the rest of the runs give you nothing. Antonio Gibson has been a very consistent ball carrier for Washington this season, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Remember, this is just his second year and not just the NFL, but as a full-time running back, you know? Like, it's funny. Antonio Gibson was a combo receiver running back in Memphis. He still hasn't done that much as a pass catcher. And I say that fully acknowledging that, yes, he had a spectacular 73-yard touchdown catch on a great catch and run and a loss at the Buffalo Bills in Week 3. But by and large, Antonio Gibson is not that much of a factor in the passing game game in, game out. But as a ball carrier, he's doing a really good job and he did a good job once again in this game uh, on Sunday. All right, Bobby McCain. So Bobby McCain is one of Washington's top three safeties this season in terms of playing time. Uh, But Bobby McCain was a part of a Washington defense that was really bad once again on Sunday. You know, Bobby McCain was part of a Washington secondary that was part of a Washington defense that allowed the Atlanta Falcons to go 10 of 16 on third downs. Embarrassing. That was an embarrassing defensive performance again for Washington on Sunday, especially on third downs. Everyone's fed up with it. You could tell during Ron Rivera's post game press conference, he's fed up with it. Uh, this team has got to figure this out because the team right now is terrible on third downs, okay? Well, Bobby McCain struck back at the media with some comments after the game. So you may have noticed this. Uh, this did get referenced during the telecast of the game. Uh, that there was a meeting on the sideline in the second quarter of the defense. Uh, You know, who knows what was said. Bobby McCain got asked about that meeting after the game, said the following, quote, yeah, I know exactly what it was about, but I'm not going to tell you guys because you guys aren't on my side. I respect what you do, but defensively, we'll get it together. We meet and we're going to figure out the details. And when we start balling and we start playing our asses off, I want y'all to write the same S that y'all write, end quote. All right, uh, a few things with this. (laughs) Comments like these always crack me up. All right, so number one, uh, I actually like Bobby McCain a lot as a player. I have no idea what kind of a person he is, but I applauded Washington signing Bobby McCain. Bobby McCain was a productive, durable player for the Miami Dolphins for years. Uh, Bobby McCain is actually not that old so this isn't like some guy you know in his mid-30s who's just hanging on by a string to his NFL career this is not Washington bringing back Ryan Clark for his second go-round with the team uh, for instance Bobby McCain this is just his age 28 season uh Bobby McCain played a lot for a 2020 Miami Dolphins defense that was very good against the pass you know the Miami Dolphins last regular season were number one in the NFL, in third down defense, and Bobby McCain on that defense played in 16 games with 15 starts, was number two on the team in defensive snaps at 89.26%. So like, to me, there was a lot to like with Bobby McCain. Uh, he offers position flex. He can play both free safety and nickel corner. Uh, Bobby McCain, in theory, is a great fit for the Ron Rivera culture reset. Bobby McCain was a captain for the Dolphins in the 2020 season. Good story. Dolphins took McCain in the fifth round of the 2015 NFL Draft out of Memphis. So I want to like preface all that I'm about to say with all of that. I praised the signing of Bobby McCain quite a bit during the offseason, but Bobby McCain is delusional when he says that the media is not on Washington's side, okay? Two things. Number one, it's not the media's job to be on your side. It's not the media's job to cheerlead you. It's certainly not the media's job to go out of its way to criticize you, but it's the media's job to be objective. Now, I'll let you decide whether the media does a good job of that or not, okay? Uh, I do think there's bias in the media. We've seen that a lot. Uh, In this country, in many different ways over the last few years. But I think you do see that in sports. You know, it's not just in politics that you have bias in the media. You do see it in sports. So I'm sympathetic to Bobby McCain in that regard. But by and large, it's never the media's job to cheerlead the teams that the media covers, okay? It's the media's job to be fair in covering those teams. But the other thing is this, and, you know, everyone's different, but I mean, from my perspective, first of all, I'm a Washington football team fan. I've been a fan of the team my whole life. I make no secret of that. And what I do is very different from what someone who covers the Washington football team for a living does, but it's in our best interest for Washington to do well. This podcast does better when Washington does well. I want Washington to do well this season because I'm a fan of the team, but also want Washington to do well this season because that is what is in the best interest of the enterprise. That is what is in the best interest of the Al Galdi podcast. So yeah, like we want Washington to to do well, because just from purely a business perspective, that's good for business. But also when Bobby McCain <laughs> says, we we meet and we're going to figure out the details. And when we start balling and we start playing our asses off, I want y'all to write the same S that y'all write. Well, no, if you start playing well, people aren't going to write the same stuff that the people are writing now. People are going to say you guys are playing better. Like, Why are you mad at the media for simply writing about what's happening, which is you guys sucking on third downs? Okay? Is that the media's fault that you guys suck on third downs? It's your fault that you suck on third downs. Now, hopefully that changes. And I still feel like it will, because it's hard for me to believe that this defense is truly this bad. But I tell you, with each passing pathetic performance, it becomes harder and harder to mount the horse of, well, this is just a defense that's really talented and off to a bad start. Like, no, at, what po- at some point, we have to make the transition from this is a talented defense off to a bad start to just this is a bad defense. You know, we're getting closer and closer to being in that territory. And maybe we're already in that territory. You know, it really depends on your perspective on something like that. But I, I could do without players lecturing the media. Okay. You do what you do. We do what we do. And uh, we'll see what happens here. But if you play better, the coverage will reflect that. And if it doesn't, then shame on the media, okay? Then you can call out the media and say this is a biased media. But this is not an overly harsh Washington football team media, okay? This has never been an overly harsh Washington football team media. And the people who come here and who say that the media in this town is overly harsh are soft, to be perfectly honest with you. You have no idea what a harsh sports media is. Go spend five minutes playing in New York or Boston and Philadelphia; those are harsh sports media cities. Okay, Washington D.C. is fair, and at times I think Washington D.C.'s media can be a little soft. Uh, but yeah, I gotta, I gotta kick out of the Bobby McCain comments. The defense has got to get its act together. We keep saying that, and it keeps not happening. And if you're a fan like me, all you can do is hope that at some point that that does happen. But yeah, spare me the lecturing, okay? That line of thinking from athletes never makes sense to me. Well, you know what else does that make sense? Overpaying real estate agents via commission. 6%, 7%, 8%. It's ridiculous. Well, John Grandland of Real Broker is changing the game with commission flex. Listen up if you're looking to sell your home. So you know how Ron Rivera loves position flex. I just made mention of Bobby McCain. He offers position flex.
2: Position Flex.
1: Yes, Ron. Position Flex. Well, John Granlin offers Commission Flex, flexible commission rates. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. Don't just swallow having to pay 6% or more. John Grandlin will put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. And John Grandlin brings to the table a menu of commission packages from which you can choose. This is what we're talking about when we talk about commission flex. You choose the commission, including, by the way, selling your home for free. Yeah, zero commission is a possibility. Some conditions do apply, but interviewing John Granlin is a total no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. If you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. This is a phone call that could make and or save you tens of thousands of dollars. You have nothing to lose. Call John G now at 703-537-6747. When you talk to John G, make sure that you tell him that Al Galdi sent you and make sure that you ask John G about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast. Commission Flex, that phone number again, 703 703- 537-6747. Or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. You owe it to yourself to contact John Granlund. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And never forget, John Granlund is the originator of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like Position Flex. Well, the Nationals 2021 season is over, and we now begin the process of addressing so many questions with this team. The Nats concluded their season by getting swept by the Boston Red Sox at Nationals Park over the weekend. The Red Sox were fighting for their postseason lives, and the Sox made the postseason. We will have the Red Sox hosting the New York Yankees on Tuesday night in the American League wildcard game. We will have the St. Louis Cardinals at the Los Angeles Dodgers on Wednesday night in the National League wildcard game. For all of the talk about tiebreakers and Game 163s and whatever else, things sorted themselves out just fine on Sunday in the final day of the Major League Baseball regular season. The Nationals General Manager and President of Baseball Operations, Mike Rizzo, spoke at length on Sunday in answering questions on the state of the Nats. We'll get to that in a bit. But I do want to hit on some of what went down in the Nats' final series of the season. So, like I said, the Nats got swept. Uh, 4-2 loss on Friday night, 5-3 loss on Saturday, 7-5 loss on Sunday. The Nats concluded a 65-97 and season. Yes, this was a 97-loss season for the Nationals. Uh, the Nats end up losing eight of the team's final nine games. This ends up being the Nats' third worst season since the franchise came to D.C. beginning with the 2005 season. I said going into the season, there was a lot about the state of the Nationals that I did not like, but I still thought the Nats would win like 83 games. I never anticipated this, a 97-loss season. There were people who thought I was being too hard on the Nats in only projecting 83 wins on the season, okay? Uh, there were people who thought I shouldn't have brought up trading away Max Scherzer as early in the season as I did. Uh, he ended up being dealt and. Many others ended up being dealt. This season ended up going in a way that a lot of uber-optimistic Nationals fans never anticipated. The Nats were an older team. The Nats were a very flawed team from a standpoint of relying on a bunch of guys who maybe could be good, but also maybe could not be good. The Nats were a team very much lacking in depth. The Nats were a team with a farm system that was barren, now is in better shape, but still is not in great shape. And the Nationals paid the price for all of these things this season. This was a real comeuppance of a season, a 97-loss season. The Nats finished last in the National League East. The Nats finished with the third-worst record in the National League. And the Nats finished with the fourth-worst run differential in the National League at minus 96. So in terms of what went down over the weekend, was this the final series in the Major League career of Ryan Zimmerman? Uh, We had quite the moment at Nationals Park on Sunday. So Ryan Zimmerman was an ad starting first baseman and number five batter in this season-ending 7-5 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Sunday. Zim went 0-3 with a bases-loaded walk and two strikeouts. But the moment of the game by far was Zimmerman taking the field in the top of the eighth and then getting removed from the game so that he got a proper send-off. And the send-off was something else. Uh, The send-off featured a lengthy standing ovation from not just the fans at Nationals Park, but also the players and players from both teams talking about the Nationals and the Red Sox. You had Davey Martinez, who has undergone a leg procedure recently and has been on crutches for weeks, hasn't been able to come out of the dugout for weeks in terms of, you know, talking to pitchers on the mound and making pitching changes, etc. You had Davey limping onto the field to hug Zimmerman. That was quite a moment. And you had Zimmerman crying. You know, the almost always stoic Ryan Zimmerman, the almost always stone-faced Ryan Zimmerman breaking down at Nationals Park. The most emotional baseball moment I've ever seen was the Cal Ripken Jr. lap around Oriole Park at Camden Yards in September 1995 when Cal broke Lou Gehrig's Ironman streak. And while this was not that, This wasn't that far from that. This really was a great moment. Ryan Zimmerman, in so many ways, is the modern-day Cal Ripken Jr. in terms of Washington, D.C. area baseball. Remember, in the 80s and 90s, the Orioles were Washington, D.C. baseball. If you grew up in this area in the 80s and or 90s, the Orioles were D.C.'s team. The Orioles were covered by outlets like the Washington Post. You had a cable channel like Home Team Sports. The Orioles games aired on home team sports, just like the Bullets games aired on home team sports, just like the Capitals games aired on home team sports. I am a child of the 80s and 90s in the Washington, D.C. area. I grew up as an Orioles fan. I've talked about that many times. And so it was hard for me to watch this with Zimmerman on Sunday and not think about Cal. Zimmerman, there's so many parallels to me between Zimmerman and Cal. And good things, right? Each guy playing with the same team throughout his career, each guy being a good player on a bunch of bad teams, each guy being like the ultimate team player, each guy being someone who is a very good player, you know, in Cal's case, a Hall of Famer. Zimmerman's not a Hall of Famer, but he certainly is one of the best players in the history of the Nationals franchise. So it was really cool to see this. Zimmerman obviously deserves this. We don't know if Ryan Zimmerman's retiring. He still says that he doesn't know, and I take him for uh, at his word on that. I think a lot of this is to be determined with things like, is there going to be a universal DH for next season with things like this, Zimmerman want to ride the horse one more time in terms of you know potentially playing for a Nationals team that isn't going to be very good for next season but good for him for getting that moment you know he got cheered like crazy for each of his plate appearances on Sunday Zimmerman in the bottom of the second a lengthy standing ovation prior to his first plate appearance in the game struck out on five pitches with uh, Josh Bell on second but Red Sox are very classy in how they handled all of this. The Red Sox catcher, Christian Vasquez, in that bottom of the second did a nice job of standing on the infield grass to allow for the ovation to take place and last for a while. And uh, Zimmerman, I mentioned that bases loaded walk, bottom of the third Zim drawing a one out bases loaded walk. Uh, some other things from the series. So Juan Soto ended his outstanding season. Now he ends the season with kind of a whimper. Uh, Soto was pretty clearly at of gas. As the season went on. And so Juan Soto, especially over these final few games, just didn't do much. Now, he did draw four walks in the 4 2 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Friday night. Uh, but Soto in the 5 3 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Saturday, 0 for 3 with an RBI sack fly and two strikeouts. Although the RBI sack fly was a plate appearance in which he just barely missed a grand slam. Uh, that was in the bottom of the eighth with one out. The uh, sack fly coming on a fly out to deep center field to tie the game at one, but Soto in the 7-5 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, 0-4 for 4, with an intentional walk and three strikeouts. He can be forgiven for not ending the season in the strongest of ways. Uh, Juan Soto finishes the 2021 regular season at number one in the majors and on base percentage at 465, 36 points better than the next best total of 429 by the ex-NAT Bryce Harper of the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, Soto finishes the regular season number three in the majors in OPS at 999. So he just finished below 1,000 with the OPS. And for those who care about batting average, uh, Juan Soto finishes the regular season number three in the majors in batting average at 313. Josh Bell ended his season in a nice way. Uh, Josh Bell was in that starting left fielder for this game on Sunday afternoon. And Bell goes two for three with a double, a single, and a walk. Uh, Josh Bell ends his season with an OPS of 8.23. Had a good series against the Red Sox, and you know, Josh Bell. What happened with him this year is something to always remember if you're a baseball fan. Someone can look so bad and so lost and be so non-productive early in a season, and still end up having a very good season. And that's what happened with Josh Bell. He was brutal in April, but he actually ended up being quite good May through September. So much so that he finishes with a more than respectable OPS of 823. I mean, after Juan Soto, Josh Bell ends the season as the national second best hitter. Okay. Like he wasn't the second best hitter on the Nats throughout the year, right? Somebody like Trey Turner or even Kyle Schwarber was ahead of Josh Bell in that regard. But as the season ends, you tell me if you watch these games, God help you if you still watch these games like I did. But if you watch these games, after Soto, which Nationals batter did you trust the most as the season went on? And I think the answer is Josh Bell. He ended up doing a really good job. And uh, I definitely want to give him credit for that. He was good defensively at first base. He was not the mess defensively at first that his reputation suggested that he might be. And he even added some position flex to his resume uh, with him playing left field as often as Bell ended up playing that position down the stretch of the season. You had older guys all over the place in this series for the Nationals. You know, few teams in sports really embrace being old like the Nats have embraced being old. I think that's one of their problems. The Nats, they got to purge themselves of these older guys and get younger and get guys with more positional versatility. But it was something else with this series, especially with this game on Sunday. So Alex Avila, who we know is retiring, was the Nats starting catcher and number seven batter for the 7-5 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. And Alex, like Zimmerman, got a nice moment on Sunday. Alex had a big hit in this game. He goes one for four with a two-run double. Uh, Alex Avila in a Nats three-run fifth had a two-run double to right field for a 5-1 Nats lead. But you also had Jordy Mercer starting all three games in this series for the Nats at second base. Luis Garcia was dealing with a strained oblique muscle, was actually placed on the 10-day injured list on Sunday. So Jordy Mercer ended up being the Nats' starting second baseman at all three games in the series. And he actually, in the game on Sunday, in the bottom of the second, had a one-out RBI double to the left center field gap. You had the baby shark delivering in this series. The Nats on Saturday put Josh Rogers on the 10-day injured list with a right hamstring strain off his final start of the season and reinstated Gerardo Para from the 10-day injured list, which Para had been on since September 5th due to right knee inflammation. And what does the baby shark do? And that 5-3 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Saturday, Porra snapped a combined perfect game bid by the Red Sox, had a pinch-two-out opposite field single to left field in the bottom of the six. And this, to me, is like the perfect bookend for the end of Gerardo Para's time with the Nats, assuming this is the end of Gerardo Porro's time with the Nats. We don't know, but like you talk about how his season started for the Nats at the Major League level. Maybe you remember this. Gerardo Parra made his 2021 Nationals regular season debut in a 5-2 win over the New York Mets at Nationals Park on June 20th. Para in that game, in his very first plate appearance for the Nats at the Major League level this season, laced a pinch went out opposite-field double into the left-field corner in a two-run Nats seventh to drive the Mets' starting pitcher in that game, Taiwan Walker, out of the game. And Nationals Park erupted in a manner in which the ballpark maybe didn't at any other point this season. Like, you'd have to really think about it, but Nationals Park, for the first time since the 2019 World Series, really, was loud due to that horror moment all the way back on June 20th. And then he comes up in this spot on Saturday and ends the Red Sox bid for a perfect game. So, you know, we'll see what Gerardo Porra's future ends up being. No way should he be back with the Nationals next year. Again, the Nats need to get younger. The Nats need to get more positionally versatile. Para did make an appearance in the game on Sunday, but the idea here is that that moment on Saturday, I think in a lot of ways, is like the perfect way to salute Gerardo Parra for a job well done as a Washington National with what Para did in 2019 and what he did in some spots this season in 2021, although he ended up not really being that productive of a player. Now, with the national starting pitching in this series against the Red Sox, you actually had some good starting pitching in this series. The Nats on Sunday in the final game of the season started this guy, Johan Adone. Uh, Johan Adone was summoned from AAA Rochester to start the Nats' final game of the season, and he ended up doing a really good job in this big game against the Red Sox. So the Nats on Sunday recall Adone from AAA Rochester. He had thrown a total of 18 innings above the high A level. In the minors this season. This is his age 22 season. The Nats signed Adone as an amateur free agent out of the Dominican Republic in July 2016. It's not like he's considered some blue chip prospect. Uh, Johan Adone is the Nats' number 22 prospect per MLB pipeline. But Adone did a really good job on Sunday. Two runs in five and two thirds innings, and the second run scored on a two out infield single by Christian Vasquez off Patrick Murphy. In the top of the six, Adone had nine strikeouts versus three walks, a hit by pitch and a wild pitch. He gave up six hits, a homer and five singles. He threw 57 strikes versus 37 balls on 94 pitches. And Adone's outing comes a day after Josiah Gray ended his 2021 season season. On a high note, Josiah Gray in the 5-3 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Saturday, one run in six innings. He gave up just three hits, a homer, a double, and a single. He had seven strikeouts versus two walks and a wild pitch. He threw 60 of his 90 pitches for strikes. So Josiah Gray, who started off really well for the Nationals in 2021, then struggled, then was good in each of the next two outings, ends up being at least decent over his final three outings of the season. So Josiah Gray ultimately makes 12 starts for the Nationals, ends up being good in eight of the 12 starts, which is pretty good. I mean, you can work with that. That four-start stretch in which he struggled was troubling, no doubt. But to see him end his season well, of beginning his time at the major league level with the Nationals well, makes you feel good and makes you feel like, okay, this guy really could end up being something for the Nationals moving forward. It's a big deal what ends up happening with Josiah Gray, right? He and K. Bert Ruiz, the top two prospects in a batch of four prospects acquired from the Los Angeles Dodgers for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner in the number one trade of the late July sell-off that was engineered by the Nats. Uh, Gray is considered one of the better pitching prospects in baseball, and he pitched that way for the most part for the Nationals this year. Like I said, he did have those four bad starts, but beyond those, he was at least decent and at times really good. And he was really good in his final outing of the season on Saturday. Uh, Josh Rogers was an ad starting pitcher in game one of the series, the 4-2 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Friday night. Four runs in six innings. He was good in the game until facing the Red Sox lineup for a third time. Rogers tossed five scoreless innings, but then allowed four runs in the top of the six. So he was better than that final line indicates, four runs in six innings, but he ends up getting God- uh, in facing that Red Sox lineup for a third time. This is basically the exact thing that happened to him in his previous outing, the 9-2 loss at the Cincinnati Reds now two Sunday afternoons ago. Rodgers in that game, four scoreless innings, but then gave up three runs in the bottom of the fifth in facing the Reds lineup for a third time. So his final line for that game, three runs in four and two thirds innings. But ultimately for Josh Rogers, uh six starts for the Nationals, he does a good job over those six starts. And that selected his contract from AAA Rochester on September 4th. He had not pitched in a Major League regular season game since 2019 when he was with the Orioles. The pitching-starved Orioles said no thank you on Josh Rogers. This is a guy who twice has undergone Tommy John surgery, but Rogers, over six starts for the Nats, ends up having an ERA of 3.28, 13 earned runs in 35 and two-thirds innings, and Davey Martinez, after Rogers' final start of the season there on Friday night, said that Rogers would be competing for a spot in the Nats 2022 rotation. And he should be. I mean, he shouldn't be guaranteed anything, but he did a nice enough job to where you say, well, maybe this guy could be, say, the Nationals number five starter in 2022. I mean, the beggars cannot be choosers. The Nationals are still lacking in organizational pitching depth. So if they have stumbled into something here and Josh Rogers, go with it and let's see some more. I mean, the sample size is small. He did feast on some bad teams, but I, you know, to me, with a guy like Josh Rogers, it doesn't matter who he was facing in some ways because it's like this guy had never really proven himself at the major league level. So to see him do as well as he did, again, an ERA of 328 over six starts down the stretch of the season for the Nationals, that's something that you can maybe work with moving forward, especially if there are some real changes to the Nats pitching staff for next season. And I think about someone like Eric Fetty. You know, Eric Fetty got off to such a good start this season, really unraveled as the season went on. And how about what happened with Fetty in the 7-5 loss to the Red Sox at Nationals Park on Sunday? Fetty gets used as a reliever, and he just does not get the job done to any degree. Uh, Eric Fetty in a Red Sox three-run seventh inning faced six batters, got just two outs, was charged with three runs on a double and three singles. I mean, look, the Nets bullpen was bad over the final two games of this series. The that's bullpen was bad for so much of this season. It was especially bad over the final two months of the season. But, you know, here you have Fetty, who, yes, is used to being a starting pitcher now. But he has pitched plenty in relief in his career. He's facing a good hitting team in the Red Sox. And he just got whacked around the ballpark. You know, Eric Fetty historically does very well against the Miami Marlins. Not every team can be the Marlins. You know, you're going to face some good hitting teams. The Red Sox are a big boy ball club. And Fetty just did not do well against them. And you do wonder with Eric Fetty if he might be non-tender to contract. He's still in his arbitration years, but... The Nationals pitching ended up being so bad this year. Fetty ended up being so bad this year. You do wonder if we're going to see some new blood, i.e. a Josh Rogers and not an Eric Fetty in the Nationals rotation next season. It's something to think about. And that brings us to the Nationals general manager and president of baseball operations, Mike Rizzo. So Mike has not spoken often to reporters this season. He does do that weekly radio hit with the Sports Junkies on 106.7 The Fan. But uh, Rizzo, I don't want to say he's been a recluse this year, but he has not spoken to reporters with any kind of regularity. And you do get the sense that Rizzo maybe was, I don't know if ashamed is the right word, but wasn't really in the mood to be taking questions on why the Nationals uh, with a bad team that they ended up being this season. Anyway, Mike did speak to reporters on Sunday in what was essentially an end-of-season wrap-up session. You see executives do this around baseball. And I want to bring to you right now some of the best of what Mike had to say. So, first of all, Rizzo will not call with the Nats are going through a rebuild. He calls this a reboot as opposed to a rebuild, which I find kind of funny, but I get why he does that. You know, rebuild is kind of a four-letter word in sports. So you say reboot. That sounds better than rebuild, even though they're both essentially the same thing. Here was Rizzo on Sunday on if anything that he has seen over the last two months, i.e. anything that he has seen since the late July sell-off, changes his thinking on a timeline for the Nats getting back to being good again.
3: Well, like I said, you know, back at the trade deadline, you know, I I see some some correlation between you know the last rebuild and reboot. Uh, But like I also said, I think we're we we're going to start at a place that's that's well uh, well above where we started in, in '09.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's hard to be below where the Nationals were where they started in 2009. Remember, Mike Rizzo takes over as interim general manager in 2009 off the Smiley Gonzalez scandal. That was a mess that Mike Rizzo inherited in 2009 from the Nationals' previous general manager, Jim Bowden. So yeah, I mean, the Nationals are ahead of where they were then. Remember, two, the Nats are in a very unique spot in that they're a team that was nearly a 100-loss team this season, but they're a team with a player in Juan Soto who is legitimately one of, what, the top two or three players in the sport, Like the Nationals already have that centerpiece franchise player that most rebuilding teams do not have, right? Like one of the reasons in theory, a team goes into a rebuilding phase is to acquire a centerpiece franchise player. The Nationals already have the centerpiece franchise player. So it's a unique situation if for no other reason than that one. Uh, Rizzo on Sunday said that the Nats pitching definitely has to improve. Uh, No kidding there. The pitching was atrocious this season. Here was Rizzo on how much he is counting on Steven Strasburg being healthy, Patrick Corbin returning to his 2019 self and Joe Ross being healthy as opposed to acquiring pitching help.
3: Well, I think I think that uh, you know it's reasonable to, uh, expectation that uh, you know Stras and 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 Patrick and and Ross have to have to pitch more effectively and and uh, and more often for you know for us to to uh, to quicken this reboot reboot but uh you know we're we're you know this thing is 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 built on uh, starting pitching starting pitching depth and and that's what we're that's what we're trying to ob- obtain uh via the uh, free agency the draft trades and that type of thing li- like we have in the past
1: and Rizzo made it clear that the Nats starting pitching first philosophy isn't changing
3: You know, uh, you know, our uh, our mantra here has been that uh, you know starting pitching is is the most important thing, and uh, and you know pitchers have to go deep in games, give us give us a a chance to win, uh, um, to take the onus off off the bullpen, and uh, you know. I always, I always think of it this way. You know, right or wrong, is that your starting pitchers are your best pitchers, and uh, and you know most relief pitchers are failed starters that move to the bullpen. And so, uh, you know, we're we're going to count on uh, the the pitchability, the talent, uh, and, and the uh, expertise of our starting pitches to get us to get us the the uh, the, the bulk of of our innings each game. So, uh, you know. When, uh, when we were, you know, for 11 years, when we were a championship caliber club, we, we had starting pitchers that uh, we led the league in innings pitched and, uh, and strikeouts and, and wins. And, and that's, you know, that's how we built our championship uh, clubs. And, uh, and th- you know, that formula's not changing.
1: All right. And then one more for you, because this is what I think everybody cares about the most. Here was Rizzo on Sunday on a realistic timeline for the Nats being good again.
3: Well, you know, nobody thought in 2012 that we were going to win 98 games, including myself. So, uh, you know, the timelines timelines are are, uh, are kind of. Uh, uh at the uh, at the at the will of of the players on the roster you know it depends on how how quickly does uh, uh ruiz become that frontline catcher and 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 uh and uh, jojo gray become a, become a frontline starting pitcher and the bullpen matures the thompsons and, and that type of thing and and what what do we what have we built around them and what what does the draft class of the cavellis and the henrys and in that group what do they look like so those are you know those are all questions uh, that uh, that we need to answer and and uh in the, in the near future. Uh, uh, and, uh, I, I think those are, those are all legitimate questions, uh, uh, that, that we all have to look at. And, uh, as far as putting a timetable, I, I'm not going to put a timetable on, uh, becoming a championship caliber club again, other than to say, we're, you know, we're lo- looking towards uh, a championship caliber season next season.
1: So here to me is the thing with the timeline of when the Nats can be good again. A lot of this is actually out of the Nats control. The Nats have done the bulk of the selling off. Like, Yeah, there are other things in theory that the Nats could do, and I actually think a sneaky smart thing might be to sign some guys this offseason who the Nats then could flip next season, like sign, say, a reliever or two, hope that that reliever does well, those relievers do well next season, and then flip those guys by next season's trade deadline to get back some more prospects. But you're not gonna trade away eight guys for twelve prospects again the way that you did this past late July. So the Nats are at the mercy of the guys already in the organization panning out. When you talk about Josiah Gray and Kaybert Ruiz and Lane Thomas and Riley Adams and someone like Cade Cavalli, who was already in the Nationals organization, somebody like Jackson Rutledge already in the Nationals organization. How those guys do, how those guys develop, whether those guys pan out and to what extent those guys pan out, that's really what's going to determine ultimately when the ads are good again. That in conjunction with something like, where is Steven Strasburg at in his recovery from surgery to address thoracic outlet syndrome? Is Patrick Corbin fixable or is he a lost cause? He pitched well down the stretch of his season. So maybe just maybe there is hope here for Patrick Corbin. But that's really what you're looking at. Like a lot of this isn't based on who do you get, you know, when you trade player X or player Y. You've done the bulk of that. Uh this really now is about what you already have, what you can add to what you have, yes, but what you already have and what ends up becoming of what you already have. But let me make this clear. Nothing matters more than the Nationals addressing the root cause of the collapse of the team this season. And that is what has been going on in the Nationals' farm system. The Nationals have got to strengthen their farm system. The Nationals have got to get good again at developing players, drafting and developing players. The Nats were so good at that for so long, and the Nats, for whatever reason, have lost their way in that regard. And that's what needs to be fixed more than anything, because if you want to have sustained success, you have to be able to grow your own star players. You can't keep having to sign guys and trade for guys you've got to be able to draft and develop well. And the Nationals have gotten away from that over the last, say, five to 10 years. That's got to get fixed. That's got to get righted. Otherwise, whatever success that the Nats do have is going to be fleeting. And one of the things that is going to play a substantial role in how the Nationals develop players is what the Nationals do with their front office. Are there front office changes that are coming? Are there coaching staff changes that are coming? It was interesting. Davey Martinez At his pregame press conference on Saturday, gave a ringing endorsement of pitching coach Jim Hickey. Uh, This is Jim Hickey's first season with the Nats. He's been a part of the team this season in which the team's pitching has totally cratered. That's not necessarily Jim Hickey's fault. It may well be that Jim Hickey has done a lot of good work. You know, there's a lot we don't know with something like this. But, you know, are there coaching staff changes? that need to happen in order to get the Nats back to where they need to be from a player development standpoint. And remember, player development isn't just a farm system thing. That can be a major league level thing. You know, Eric Fetty got worse as this season went on, not better. Why? Why isn't he being developed better? Is that uh, on the Nationals to any degree? Is it just on Fetty? Is he just not a very good pitcher? Don't know the answer, but that's something to be thinking about. By the way, Davey at his pregame presser on Saturday also gave us a Steven Strasburg update, said that Strasburg uh, was to begin throwing on November 2nd. Uh, Strasburg underwent that season-ending surgery to address the thoracic outlet syndrome in late July. Uh, Davy said that Strasburg is actually noticeably slimmed down. Uh, I didn't know that Strasburg needed to slim down, but okay. Uh, but that Strasburg will actually begin throwing again on November second. It's hard to be bullish on Steven Strasburg. This is a very serious procedure that he underwent. Thoracic outlet syndrome is worse than like Tommy John uh, for a pitcher. Okay, like you rather have to undergo Tommy John surgery than have to undergo surgery to correct. Thoracic outlet syndrome. So I'm not overly optimistic on Steven Strasburg moving forward, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you quit. That doesn't mean that you don't support the guy full throttle. And that doesn't mean that you don't hope like heck that he ends up becoming the pitcher who we saw as recently as in 2019. But this is a very interesting time right now for the Nationals. Uh they're not in a good spot. They're not in a good way. They just had a terrible 2021 season, but that doesn't mean That things have to be like this for very long. All right, let's talk college football week five regarding the big four teams of the region. Uh, I, on Friday show, episode 157, talk Virginia of its big 30-28 win at Miami last Thursday night. Cavaliers at Louisville uh, this Saturday afternoon at 3 the Cardinals on Saturday lost at number 24 wake 4 37 34. We had no game in week 5 for Virginia Tech which will host number 9 Notre Dame this Saturday night at 7:30. The Fighting Irish lost on Saturday 24 13 home loss to number 17 Cincinnati. Also, losing over the weekend Maryland. Uh, what a disaster Friday night ended up being. Terrapins fell to 4 and 1 with a 51 51- 14 loss to number five Iowa at Capitol One Field at Maryland Stadium and College Park. We thought that this time might be different. I certainly thought that this time might be different. I took Maryland plus the three and Goldilocks, and more wrong, I could not have been. Uh, this game was a complete debacle. This was one of the more hyped and anticipated Maryland football games in years. This was a chance for the program under head coach Mike Loxley to author a signature win, or at the very least, be competitive, and the Terps got smashed. You know, the Terps got eviscerated. The Terps got humbled. As our friend, the Iron Sheik likes to say, make him humble. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby, make him humble. Iowa put Maryland in the camel clutch and made Maryland humble. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky. Uh, This game was so reminiscent of a similar situation for Maryland just two years ago. The 59-0 home loss to then number 12 Penn State on a Friday night. That was Friday night, September 27th, 2019. That game, just like this game against Iowa this past Friday night, screaming confirmation of the Terps just not being ready for prime time. Maryland remains without a win over an Associated Press top five team since October 30th, 2004. That's when Maryland beat then number five Florida State in College Park 2017. I was at that game. I'll never forget that game. And I have no idea when we'll see another win like that for Maryland. Because here's the thing. This 51-14 home loss to number five Iowa on Friday night is just the latest in a long line of humblings for the Terps. This loss marked yet another beatdown loss for the Terps against a ranked Big Ten team. The Terps don't just routinely lose to ranked Big Ten teams. The Terps routinely get clobbered by ranked Big Ten teams. Just look at the previous, say, five years. November 2016. The Terps over a three-game stretch at then number three Michigan, home to then number five Ohio State, and at then number 18 Nebraska lost all three games by a combined score of 149. 13. 2017, the Terps played four games against ranked Big Ten teams. The Terps lost all four of those games by a combined score of 183-37. 2018, the Terps lost a thrilling home game against then number 10 Ohio State, 52-51 in overtime. That was in November 2018. That was a great game, and that was a loaded Buckeyes team. That Buckeyes team included the likes of Dwayne Haskins and Terry McLaurin and Chase Young and Jeff Okuda and J.K. Dobbins. So that was a competitive game against a ranked Big Ten team. But the Terps lost their other three games against ranked Big Ten teams that season by a combined score of 103-24. 2019, the Terps finished one and eight in the Big Ten got outscored over the eight losses. You ready for this? 369-96. We all knew when Maryland joined the Big Ten that football could be tough. It has been tough, and then some. Maryland consistently gets thoroughly outclassed by the best in the Big Ten. It's depressing as a Maryland fan, and this happened again on Friday night. Uh, What's funny about this loss to Iowa is that the Terps actually led in the first quarter, 7-3, hard to believe. But the Terps then allowed Iowa to score 41 consecutive points, including losing the second quarter, 31-0. The Terps in that second quarter committed four turnovers. And that really is what the game ended up being about, turnovers. Maryland committed an astounding seven turnovers in facing in elite Iowa defense. I mean, Iowa is so legit defensively. Iowa entered week five number two in the FBS in defensive efficiency per ESPN. More than lived up to that billing. Iowa's seven takeaways. It's most in a game over the last 25 seasons. Six of the Terps turnovers were interceptions, five of which were by the Terp starting quarterback Talia Tungavailoa, who was terrible. I mean, let's just say it like it was. Talia Tungavailoa, was terrible in this game. He entered the game having been really good over the Turps first four games of the season, but he in this game went just 16 of 29 for just 157 yards, 5.41 yards per pass attempt, two touchdowns and five interceptions. Three of the interceptions came in that horrendous second quarter in which again the Turps got outscored 31-nothing and Talia wasn't sacked once. So it's not like he was under siege throughout the game. He was just off. And then there was the Terps other turnover. Terps receiver, Dante Demas Jr. had four receptions for 61 yards, but he suffered a nasty looking right leg injury on an early second quarter six yard kickoff return on which he committed a lost fumble. Just a gruesome looking injury. We, as of early Monday morning, we're still awaiting word on what exactly the injury is, but suffice it to say that did not look like some one or two week injury uh, Demas, so good for the Turps this season, had three 100 yard receiving games over the Turps' first four games of the season. It was cool to see what Demas did while being carted off the field. He, while being carted off the field, shouted, I'm coming back. Good for him, but a brutal moment there for Dante Demas Jr. Uh, the Turps' defense it got carved up by Iowa quarterback Spencer Petrus. Iowa's offense had not been great. This season, uh, the offense looked just fine on Friday night. Petrus 21-30 for 259 yards. That's 8.63 yards per pass attempt. Three touchdowns, no interceptions, was sacked just twice. And Petrus had two rushing touchdowns. Also, the Terps had 10 accepted penalties for 82 yards. Just an atrocious night for Maryland football. You know, Maryland Athletics for this game unveiled a new video board at Capital One Field at Maryland Stadium. The board is the ninth largest collegiate video board in the country and the largest in the Big Ten. And uh, the video board offered some great looks at the Terps getting their behinds whipped in this game. Make you mumble, yesiki. Yes, Chiki, uh, thank you. Uh, oh, by the way, next up for Maryland is a game at number 11, Ohio State, this Saturday at noon. Raise your hand if you expect that game to go well. So the only team of the Big Four that actually played this past Saturday was Navy. And the midshipmen got their first win of the season, improved to one and three, a 34-30 win over UCF at Navy Marine Corps Memorial Stadium in Annapolis. Uh, this pick I got right on Goldilocks. It took Navy plus the 16 and a half. This was obviously a needed win for Navy off its 0-3 start to the season, but this also was a great comeback win. The midshipmen overcame a 30-17 fourth quarter deficit. Navy won the fourth quarter. Now look, the Mids triple option offense, which was not good over the first three games, was really bad over the first two games, still isn't firing on all cylinders. But the offense did have its best game of the season so far. Mids in this game totaled 348 rushing yards and three touchdowns on 76 carries. That's 4.58 yards per carry. Slotback Carlinos Acey had 11 carries for 85 yards, though he did also have a first quarter loss fumble that ended Navy's first offensive drive. It was the first offensive drive of the game. That fumble, you're like, oh man, here we go again with Navy. But Navy was better uh, as the game went on. Fullback Isaac Ruas had 21 carries for 84 yards and a touchdown. And Ty Lovatai was Navy's starting quarterback for the first time in three games off missing the previous two games Due to a lower body injury, 21 carries for just 57 yards. And he had a lost fumble in this game. His game in the third quarter. But Lovatai also had two rushing touchdowns. And he went two of four passing for 58 yards. No touchdowns, no interceptions, took one sack. But the big completion, Lovatai late third quarter, first and 10, 49 yard under center completion while under duress to slot back Chance Warren. Uh, Navy's defense wasn't perfect, but the defense did hold UCF to just two at nine On third downs and the defense that have a big fourth quarter interception on a fourth and 15 at the Navy 17 with less than a minute left in the fourth quarter and Navy nursing a 34-30 lead. Navy linebacker Taylor Robinson coming through big time, an interception in the end zone of a shotgun pass by UCF quarterback Mikey Keene, who Navy held to just 178 yards on 26 pass attempts, 6.85 Yards per pass attempt and Navy special teams, which had been abysmal over the first three games of the season, delivered multiple big plays in this win over UCF in Annapolis. A blocked first quarter extra point attempt and a late second quarter blocked punt. Navy in this game looks so much more like the Navy that we've come to know. You know, first under head coach Paul Johnson, more recently under head coach Ken Niamatololo. Here was Niamatololo during his post game press conference on Saturday evening
2: we know how good they were we try our best to keep them off the field offensively and try to possess the clock i don't know what time possession was but try to possess the, the ball and play better on special teams and we did that and even with all of that we barely won i mean uh, there there's a reason i I, um, I look this way i i work out every day but I haven't lost an ounce in 14 years <laughs> but it's it's stressful i mean it's stressful i mean the ball, all of our games are uh, but I just we're back Navy football, that was us, and I'm really, really excited.
1: Great to see Navy get the win. Great to hear Niamatololo sound like that. Next up for the midshipmen, home to SMU this Saturday afternoon at 3.30. All right. Three quick notes on some other things that happened over the weekend at Washington, D.C. Sports. So the Wizards, as of Friday, could have offered Bradley Beal another max contract extension. And according to Wizards insider Chase Hughes of NBC Sports Washington, the Wizards did make the offer. Now, no formal response from Beal. It may be a while, maybe a long while until Beal responds. It may also be that he wants to do a shorter term extension. The Wizards per Hughes are willing to do a full four-year $181.5 million extension, but Beal may come back and want to do, say, a two-year extension, which is what he did with his last extension, which doesn't even kick in until this coming season. This is also screwy to me that the Wizards were in a position in which they essentially had to offer another extension to Beal before the previous extension had even kicked in. I mean, does that sound right to you? Uh, It doesn't sound right to me, but anyway, uh, that's where we are with the Wizards and Beal. Also, the Capitals, Nicholas Backstrom, he spoke to reporters on Saturday, and the bottom line is that there remains no timetable on Backstrom's recovery from this hip situation. So the Caps on September 23rd, the first day of 2021 Caps training camp, announced that Backstrom would miss the start of training camp due to ongoing rehabilitation on his hip and was listed as week to week. Backstrom underwent hip surgery in May 2015. Cap Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan in a press conference on September 23rd said that Backstrom was dealing with wear and tear on the hip off that surgery. This coming season will be Backstrom's age 34 season. He's still a very good player, but he's obviously an older player. Now, we know the NHL season is so long, so you don't want slash need to rush Backstrom's return, but it is looking more and more like he may well miss the start of the regular season. Uh, Caps already have played three preseason games, have another one on Monday night at the New Jersey Devils. at seven regular season opener is October 13th against the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena. And the Orioles, uh, they concluded their 2021 season over the weekend, got swept in three games at the Toronto Blue Jays, a fitting ending to the Orioles' 2021 season. The O's got outscored over the final two games, 22-5. John Means got shellacked in game two of the series. Bruce Zimmerman didn't even make it out of the first inning in game three of the series. Again, a fitting ending to this Orioles season, but the rebuilding and tanking O's finished with a record of 52 and 110, tied with the Arizona Diamondbacks for the worst record in the majors. And so the O's do get the number one pick in the 2022 MLB draft. The tiebreaker is the previous year's record. Well, the O's and Diamondbacks actually had the same record in 2020. So MLB had to go back to 2019, and the O's had the worst record that season. So yeah, the O's will have the top pick in the 2022 MLB draft. So if you're an Orioles fan and you're looking at this past weekend, you say, oh, gee, they got bludgeoned, and oh, gee, they got swept at Toronto. It don't matter. This past weekend was a win, the top pick. Is back in the hands of the Orioles. Joe Angel, if you would. And the Orioles again in the win column. Yes, Joe, thank you. That, my friends, is a win. And so that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Algaldi. You can email me, the AlgaldiPodcast at Yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 159, will feature much more off the Washington football team's 34-30 win. At the Atlanta Falcons, we'll have Ron Rivera's day after the game press conference to go through. I'm interested to see if Don Ron is any happier during Monday's presser than he was during Sunday's post-game press conference. He does not love where his team is at right now, and I don't blame him one bit. This defense is a mess. You now have a bunch of injury worries, but you also have a playmaker at quarterback, the game manager playmaker, Taylor Heineke. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday.